This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Andrew. Oh, hi, Andrew. It's Craig. <laughs> Let me paint you a picture, Craig. Please. You're watching your favorite movie or TV show. Okay. And with each stunning shot or brilliant edit, you're asking yourself, how do they do it? And then you're asking yourself another question. How do I do it? Well, that question is why I love American Masters Colon Creative Spark, the award-winning podcast from PBS that illuminates the creative journeys of icons across disciplines from music to comedy to poetry to film. Uh, each episode, host Joe Skinner sits down with luminaries like legendary writer-director John Waters, Oscar-winning songwriter Buffy St. Marie, and Pulitzer-winning The Candy House novelist Jennifer Egan. Uh, you might remember her from Visit to the visit from the Goon Squad, which we discussed way back in 2013. Not visit to the Goon Squad. That's visit. different. Don't do that. <laughs> it's a different. It's a it's a sequel series <laughs> where you return return to the Goon Squad. Oh no! Uh, the latest episode features Al Nelson, who's the sound designer for Top Gun Maverick, which Ooh. I think is a movie that the entire culture didn't expect to like nearly as much as it did. <laughs> yeah, it just came roaring back onto our screens, and everyone mm-hmm. wants to know how they made it. How they des- how you design that sound. So whether you want to learn more about an old classic, discover a new favorite, or find inspiration for your own creative journey, this is the podcast for you. Follow American Masters Creative Spark on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts, and tell them we sent you. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Ow, my my, my feet. My feet are hot. (laughs) My feet are so hot from standing on this tin roof. Oh, wow. These are really unpleasant cat sounds. Uh, This is our book podcast. Obviously, every week one of us reads a book that we've never read before. And we tell each other about it. And we tell you, the audience, about it. And we just have a good and slightly educational time. Slightly educational. We want you to learn something, but we don't want you to like feel like you're learning something. No. You know? <laughs> well, some some old iTunes review deliberately mm-hmm. said we were not pretentious, right? That's true. I don't know I've what never, else they I've said. Never been, I've never been pretentious. <laughs> I've, no. I've never been loquacious. Hmm. I've ever I've, been pedantic. Have I been sagacious? Which one's that one? Which Sailor Moon is that one? Sagacious? 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 Is that how you... I thought it was like sage, sagely. Having or showing keen mental discernment and good judgment. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Mm. Not like getting into this little conversational cul-de-sac, but other times I've I've displayed those qualities. I've ever been sanguine. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what did you read for our podcast this week? This week I read Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by Tennessee Williams. Tin Roof. Rusted. Rusted. It's a mm-hmm. play oh, that when you buy it, it's still a book. You read it. So it counts. <laughs> I don't you hate when you go out to buy a play and all they have is like a little box with all the actors and the sets and everything in it and you have to take it home, you have to build it and you have to put it on and it's and you have to just a big find a place for all the actors to sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've got Gary Sinise sleeping in your drawers. 
you know, <laughs> of your cupboard. Um, so this is a play that I've never read. Um, uh, my familiarity with Williams goes like this. I have seen numerous productions of A Glass Menagerie, most of them great. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all of them, huh? I would say some of them have been like individual performances are always somebody in glass sure, menagerie okay. always knows what they're doing okay sure. um and some of them i've seen that have been just, just straight wonderful uh, i really like that play i think i really like that play personally also because i've always had a soft spot for like direct audience address characters um, and you love menageries and I love menageries kinds. of <laughs> fragile animals, yeah. Um, I once worked on a reading of Streetcar Named Desire. I have not seen that in a full production before. Did you get to read the Stella part? No, I read this guy named Mitch. He's not boring. a guy. Um, <laughs> okay. And that's kind of sort of it. I know I could recognize some of the titles of his other plays, I've read about his work a bunch. I've never read or seen this one. I know there's another play called A Night of Iguanas. What's it called? The one with the iguana. The Night of the Iguana. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> a Night of Iguanas. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the worst prom theme I've ever heard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's a big join, deal. Join us for A Night of Iguanas. <laughs> he's a big deal, Tennessee is, and... I'm just kind of surprised that I never got around to reading him for the show before now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because I, I mean, do you want to give a little like we were going to read another playwright for the yeah, show? Yeah, I'll but say then that real quick. Decide I, not to because he's a real poophead. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to belabor it. I don't want to make it like no, a big we thing. Just, just quick, just quickly. A few episodes ago, I said we were going to read Glengarry Glen Ross by David Mamet, and then I, you know, did some background research because I remembered him being kind of a, you know, stinker in a way that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was worse than that, and I just don't want to talk about him, you know. So we won't, and that'll so be all we that won't. we talk about him. Yeah, it's just it's our podcast. We can talk about whoever we want to. His plays <laughs> really? are still out there. You can still read them. His movies still exist. You can still watch them. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to make a podcast about him right now. That's, yeah. So we're doing Tennessee Williams instead. And those and the, listen, those four guys, Glenn and Gary, and the other Glenn and Ross. Um, could he? Be any more of a salesman? <laughs> Wait, that's. I'm sure they're having a great time. Yeah, those guys probably. They're all friends. Um, yeah. Get it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you know about Tennessee <laughs> Williams, Andrew? So, okay, Tennessee Williams. I don't know why his pen name is Tennessee Williams, but I know that his real name is Thomas Williams. Mm. I was like, wait, is it? Were his parents trying to do like a Sufjan thing and have a kid for each <laughs> state? But. No, it's he he picked up his pen name himself later. He was born in 1911, died in 1983, and he's usually grouped with folks like Eugene O'Neill and yeah. Arthur Miller yeah. in discussions of great 20th century American playwrights. Yes. Uh you talked about most of his like most notable works, uh so uh, this Cat, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Streetcar Named Desire, The Glass Menagerie, Sweet Bird of Youth, and The Night of the Iguana. Guy wrote a lot of other plays, most of the ones that he wrote oh, in like man. the 60s and 70s do not pass the I Wikipedia was, Blue Link test. <laughs> I was looking at that list. So like this play comes... So first I will say that his name is purportedly a college nickname that comes from his accent and like his father's background in Tennessee. Sort huh. of like, um, you know, what is in, in Deadwood when uh, Seth Bullock rolls into town and people just start calling him Montana. Okay, you know sure. that's mm-hmm. just where you're from. Whatever, I don't know. Um, 
But like, yeah, he has this amazing run that starts with Streetcar, uh, Menagerie and Streetcar in 44 and 47. Yes. And then he has like seven plays on Broadway that include this one like smack in the middle of it. He's got hot hands. 40s and 50s, great time for Tennessee Williams. Yes. No, well, certainly professionally. I professionally, don't know. He's yes. have, professionally, he's doing great. <laughs> Um, I certainly recognize almost all of the titles in that run, including like Camino Royale and uh, Orpheus Descending. And Uh, then it's it's pronounced Casino Royale. It's called Gran Torino. (laughs) Um, And then the rest of them, no idea what any of these plays are in the bar of a Tokyo hotel close for a summer hotel. The Red Devil Battery sign. What are you do? What were these plays? I don't know. I just don't know, and nobody knows because the the <laughs> words on Wikipedia aren't blue, and so nobody knows anything about them. But he in the sixties and seventies, like his partner Frank Merlo, died in nineteen sixty three. Yeah. yeah. Uh, following that, he just struggled a lot with depression and and with drugs and alcohol, and and he a continued second, to, second to of write. One of his partners who had passed away too. Yeah. He he continued to write, but he was just he was not having a great time of it personally and it Mm -mm. bled over into his work a little bit and like bad reviews for the plays begat uh, self self doubt and more problems to go with the problems he was already having. So yeah, not, 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 not super fun. No. Um, so he spent uh, most of his childhood in like an Episcopalian rectory, like a lot of his, his young childhood. And his dad was super abusive, and those things both informed his work. Oh. Um, he was being recognized for his writing as early as age 16. He won a prize for an essay called Can a Good Wife Be a Good Sport? <laughs> Which, as a, like a white man writing in 1927, I'm just not going to speculate about what that, what that <laughs> is about. I don't know. Um, yeah, and so he, you know, he, he wrote a bunch from, uh, in, starting in 1939, he wrote for the Works Progress Administration, yeah, which yeah. is the Roosevelt uh, program back. to, yeah, bring it back. Um, and then his play Battle of Angels got him a thousand dollar Rockefeller grant that sort of yeah. gave to, like, started to open up other like doors for him. But yeah, it wasn't until, uh, the mid forties with Glass Menagerie and then Streetcar where he was really getting, like great reviews, a lot of acclaim, and and his work was being, you know, his works was being recognized more and more. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I know, like the technical definition of of this term, this like style of thing that he helped popularize. Oh, I'm curious what your experience oh with it is. I don't even know what you're going to ask me. Um, so he's identified with this thing called plastic theater. What uh, in the well? You don't know about plastic theater? It's if in, I knew about it, I've forgotten. It's in the Glass Menagerie in particular, but that like all of his plays sort of do this. He has this quote in like the notes, I guess, for Glass Menagerie, where he writes uh, the straight realistic play with its genuine frigid air and authentic ice cubes. Its characters who speak exactly as its audience speaks corresponds to the academic landscape and has the same virtue of a photographic likeness. Everyone should know nowadays the unimportance of the photographic in art, that truth, life, or reality is an organic thing which the poetic imagination can represent or suggest, in essence, only through transformation, through changing into other forms than those which were merely present in appearance. Uh, He says, these remarks are not meant as a preface only to this particular play. They have to do with a conception of new plastic theater, which must take take the place of the exhausted theater of realistic conventions if the theater is to resume vitality as a part of our culture. Sure. Make it more like 
is impressionist the word like make, make it more a little more abstract or like you know how when you go make into the emotions a, bigger it doesn't have to be like two people sitting at a table like talking to each other all well, the time and there is a period there is a period of time in theatrical history too as you have the money to do so and the and there is an audience for it before movies where you are really working towards like li- as much literal representation as you can on stage uh-huh. like mm-hmm. bring in all the props bring in all the st- we can mi- like it's pure black it's like that's when the fourth wall goes up um like characters don't been ever trying to, we've been trying to break that thing for <laughs> I ever <know>. since <laughs> and you know that was of like a, a interesting era where we decided that that was a thing we could do um because we were able to like create this facsimile of life on stage but like you walk into a theater you know those people don't live there you know I'll pretend like, yeah and it's a thing that i think some people struggle with when they watch film that is like movies that are not quote unquote realistic um i'm not talking about like i don't know they're like they're, when stuff is getting a little like timey-wimey or impressionistic I, or yeah i know what you mean like when people talk about realism in terms of, of yeah. TV or film, they're not necessarily saying, I want this thing to have literally happened or to like be literally possible. They just want it to, they want the, mo- the, the emotions and the motivations and the characters to all like feel true to, to something. To, well, and like they want it, uh, too many people, I think, think they want it to feel true to like, some imagined verisimilitude of like ground, like only real people behave this way, you mm-hmm. know, like it's, it's whereas like it can be emotionally true, even if it's fictionally heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that like Lydia Tarr is a real person. Like that's really what a lot of people are seem to be upset <laughs> right. about. No, I've got- <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different issue. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what he's getting at here is if you read some Tennessee Williams, you will, um, get a lot of metaphorical imagery and props and sound and things that very clearly mean something while they're happening. Um, that as yeah, the poetic imagination um, is a, is a good way to think about it. Um, mm-hmm. He's not necessarily putting stuff on stage because it uh, like that is okay. The play is set in the 1950s in Mississippi, mm-hmm. and there this one bedroom has just a giant bed in it, just a yeah. huge bed. Mm-hmm. And it's not because these people love giant beds. No one in mm-hmm. this play is like, oh, there was a great sale on I giant beds. I love my beds. giant bed, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it is it is a play about... <laughs> this is a Mississippi king. It's, it's bigger than all the other beds. <laughs> it's 28,000 acres of bed. Um <laughs> No one is is in the play talking about the bed like that. It is there because, like, he is telling you that the bed in this play needs to be outsized. It needs to loom over these characters because two of our main characters, Maggie and Brick, it's about whether or not they sleep together, whether or not they will ever sleep together, and what having progeny means for any of these characters in in this world, and let alone the plot of the play. So, like, what real thing can you evoke with your oversized novelty mattress yeah basically. of course yeah sure um, um well just i'll just a, say like i don't i maybe ever learned the term plastic theater but that is an interesting maybe if i were more steeped in williams 
in school, I would have uh, just like locked that away somewhere. Well, but. and I also like, like a lot of of like innovations in in any art form. Like something that that is really a sea change sort of just becomes conventional, yeah. And, yeah. and in doing so, no longer needs to be like named something because That's it's a good just point. like yep. yeah. Um, so a couple more things about this play specifically. This is an adaptation of a short story yeah, called that. Three Players of a Summer Game that he wrote in 1952. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, it first premiered on Broadway in 1955. Uh, so here's uh, so, OK, the 1955 production. There are some names in it. The one that's, that jumped out at me was Burl Ives as yeah. Big Daddy. Yeah. He was the snowman narrator from the stop motion Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer movie, uh-huh. among probably other things. <laughs> I think he reprised it in the film too, um, with uh, Paul Newman's in that movie. Sure, as yes, well. yeah. The the nineteen fifty eight movie with Paul Newman and Elizabeth yeah. Taylor was a big uh, uh, another adaptation. Um, so there's this guy, the director of the original, yeah, Ilya Kazan production, yeah, yeah. Ilya Kazan. Yeah, he was a big, he was a big shot. He was a big man with he's big, a big deal. He's a yeah with a big footprint and big power that they like to swing around. He wanted things in the third act of this play to be different than they were. He wanted yes. a couple characters to be more sympathetic. He wanted, he was like, you know, the audience loves Big Daddy. We got to bring him back for another scene, <laughs> even though he's like dying. Yeah. Um, and the, so the so those changes were made for the original run. The play as originally published included that revised third act, but also the original third act. And then for the 1974 revival, uh, Williams like restored the original third act and made some other uh, revisions elsewhere, uh, and that's that's usually the version that's that's put on today. Like that that w- those were changes that Williams himself made, and then he uh, died, you know, a few years after that, and that's kind of where the the work was was left. Um, yeah, other notable productions ran in 1988, and twenty eighteen. Um, the 2018 performance was at the Young Vic, and it was filmed, and it can be screened on the Royal National Theater's streaming site if you can access it. I don't know about like region oh, yeah. locks for that sort of thing. But. It is playing in Philadelphia, like right now. Like, not nice. I don't know, but it's it's. I don't think it's on literally as we're recording this moment, but yeah, it's it pretty is, late. <laughs> but it is on right now here in Philadelphia. Yeah. The so the edition I read. This is thank you for bringing that up. It's good for me to to like specify because yeah, like, specify with the one you read, and then I have a note from the original New York Times review of ooh. the first production that I think can be a springboard into. Oh, great! Okay, play to stick. So play I read, um, I read a digital edition, but it is the New Directions paper book, um, <laughs> which it, New Directions has been publishing it for a long, long time. And yes, I read it has the original script of the play uh, that Williams wrote, and that I think was maybe in it did it did do some initial tryouts in Philly, um, and then I don't remember when he started doing the rewrites with Kazan. But um, so I have th- that version is here, and I read it, and then there's an essay from Williams explaining his relationship with Kazan. And the changes that got made. My favorite part of this essay called Note of Explanation. (laughs) He says, if you don't want a director's influence on your play, there are two ways to avoid it and neither is good. (laughs) And he goes on to say, like, you could just let him do it or you could say take it or leave it. 
Um, and he's like, and then he goes on to say like, it is worthwhile to like learn from other people who you're collaborating with. But, um, and then it has the, the act three as played in the New York production, which I think means that this is anything that I read is not part of the 1974 Michael Kahn revival. So you, you read, did you read the the pre Kazan yeah. edits or the post? I believe edits I read both? the pre Kazan version of the play. Okay. Then I read the post Kazan version of Act Three. Okay. Uh, but I but I know that he went back and did more than just Act Three for the Michael Kahn right for the for the seventy four seventy four. Though I yeah. I do think Big Daddy sticks around in that version, but it's a but it's tweaked. It's really the. I mean, the, by that point, people coming to see this play were just like, you know, Big Daddy's in, in Act Three, right? <laughs> yeah. And if, if there's no Big Daddy, then everybody's going to stand up and they're going to start rioting and they're going to start chanting "Big Daddy, Big Daddy" <laughs> until he comes out on stage. <laughs> and you just want to avoid that, I think, as a as a director. It is <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. <laughs> like people listening to this podcast are not going to have the experience that I had, which was like, I don't know this play. I'm going to read this script for my book podcast. And then there's an essay that says, oh, I made a bunch of changes to it. Here's some of those changes. And then I get to about... So, like, I'm reading this first version of it with no knowledge Mm -hmm. that there are other future changes to come. So, it was just kind of a fascinating experience to get the OG version first. And because usually what happens, especially for the show, is like I know that there are other editions, and I'm like diving into a particular one. Well, and what was that? What was that play? The the more recent one that you read not that long ago, Angels in America. Yeah, Angels yeah. in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I think the like once once he revised that, like the That's revised it. one was the canon one, yeah. and that was the only one you could get. There's which, I, yeah, I think there's an editor's note in here, not from Williams, but from someone else that says like. The only versions of this play worth reading or producing are the original, like Cat the First or whatever they call it, mm-hmm. or the 1974 one. Like, don't do just the Kazan one. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't do that. All right. Um, okay, reviews for the production. Uh, this is by a fella named Brooks Atkinson. Oh, Brooks Atkinson. The, I've heard that name before. The headline, theater, colon, Tennessee Williams, Cat. <laughs> Subhead writer depicts some restless Delta folk. <laughs> okay, okay. This is this isn't the beginning of the review, but this is just the part that I thought would would get us into discussing it. Again, Mr. Williams is discussing some people of the Mississippi Delta, which he knows well. And again, the people are not saints and heroes, but this time Mr. Williams has broken free from the formula or the suspicion of formula that has hovered around the edges of his plays. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is the work of a mature observer of men and women and a gifted craftsman. To say that it is the drama of people who refuse to face the truth of life is to suggest a whole school of problem dramatists, but one of its great achievements is the honesty and simplicity of the craftsmanship. It seems not to have been written. It is the quintessence of life. It is the basic truth. Whoa. So some real plastic theater in here. Some real plastic theater in here. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. It seems not to have been written. What's that about, you think? It seems not... Okay, here's what I think that means. Mm-hmm. The The plot as such does not have... Um, oh, it's interesting because... Man, I could read about this play mm-hmm. like 
five times as long as I could read this play. Like, I had a great time <laughs> reading this play, and then I started reading about it, and there's just a lot of interesting stuff to think about. So, uh, William says in an essay, um, a recurrent, or this is, this is from an essay in the book, rather, from, from the editor, a recurrent disagreement between Williams and Kazan, in fact, was that Kazan, true to what Williams called his quote-unquote lefty training in the group theater, considered that events should be shown to alter character, whereas Williams believed that they could only reveal what was basic and unchanging in a personality. Hmm. That, to me, speaks to the uh, play being just, like, there, not written, in that, like, there's not a, a contrived plot thing in in the way that I think some kind of, quote-unquote, well-made plays that I do really like, like an Ibsen or something like that, have this, like, oh, man... This thing is definitely gonna happen, and it's there's like, how are the pieces gonna come together so that the thing explodes? Mm-hmm. And this is like three like Seinfeld. Yeah, it is kind. Of, <laughs> it's why I like those episodes of Seinfeld so much. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like Williams is like here are some people, they're all busted. Each act is gonna have like two or three of them be really important, and and kind of going at each other. There might be some secrets getting revealed, but I don't know that anybody really changes mm-hmm. in a real way. It's more they just bec- they they become more of themselves by the end. Like they've really doubled down on who they are by the end of the play for some yeah, of them. And I think if you're going for like a perception of reality, it yeah, is, I mean, like it, it's certainly tidy to to suggest that some like somebody's life arc could be altered in the space of like uh, two hours yes. on a stage, like one little story that, it, that, you know, their life was one way before and now it's going to be another way after makes more sense that you would just be viewing like a two hour chunk of a person's life. And they're going to be like basically the same person they <laughs> were before after the event. And, and, <laughs> it's not like, just, and I don't want to sell because if you're if you're performing this, you're certainly going to look for ways that characters change you and alter your behavior. But yeah, I, I was just responding to yeah, like the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. revealing character versus changing character. Yes, thing. totally. Yeah, to that's me. a yes. great verb yeah. for ring, it. Ring, yeah, rings true, strikes true. Is seems usually true, it's feels rings true. true, strikes home. Sure, hits home, home. Strikes, strikes out. out. <laughs> <laughs> um, Glass but, onion. <laughs> A strikes out story. I don't know. Just let's let's keep doing it. Keep doing the podcast. We're like um, sharks. We can't stop moving or we'll die. What was I gonna say? I had something. Oh, but what what's interesting is this like this revealing character thing versus like contrived plot changing character thing, which may who knows? Maybe somebody's listening is like that's a false dichotomy. But um, Williams is especially proud that this play adheres to like a a um classical greek theater unity of time uh the play takes place in real time it has intermissions no time passes during the intermissions he's very clear about that so it's not like the commercial breaks during 24 no it is not like that the show 24 a super relevant and current reference yes great Mm -hmm. dead we're checking all the boxes andrew deadwood Mm -hmm. 24 lydia tar we're here um and so, like, you'll get to the curtain for the end of Act One, and then the 
when you come back from intermission, just it just picks right back up from from mm-hmm. where they were. Sure. Um, and he seemed particularly interested in that, like, okay, the night, the Passover question, like, why is this play happening when it is? Is that it is, uh, it's Big Daddy's birthday. He's sixty five ish, I think. It's a good age. Um, and I assume <laughs> everyone's you know there in his big house uh, to celebrate his birthday. But they're also there because for the last few years, he's been feeling increasingly unwell. Mm-hmm. They thought that he was dying of cancer. He's gotten this doctor's report that says, no, it's just a spastic colon. Uh, but this is 1955, and so no doctors knew anything yet. Well, actually, it's <laughs> it's just that um, everyone in the family except for Big Daddy and Big Mama knows that it is actually cancer. Ah, uh, okay. And right. tonight, they're going to tell Big Mama that it was not a true doctor's report. Okay. Um, so, like, that is the thing that's going to happen this evening, um, which, you know, necessitates this kind of, like, you know, probably two and a half, three hours of... of action on stage Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's kind of like the setup the other thing i guess in the setup is that this is on a plantation property um in the mississippi delta they refer to it multiple times as twenty-eight thousand acres of land which seems like too much to me that's a lot of that's a lot of land i tried to find a good online tool to like calculate and show me on a google map how big that was and i couldn't make it work but it seems big to me yeah i mean yeah, that seems pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any follow-ups. <laughs> In, yeah, unless you're in, I don't know, like Nevada, you know, mm-hmm. pick a state that just seems like it has a lot of extra room in it. Yeah, what's going on it over there? Seems like a lot. And uh, it is the 1950s, so it's like Jim Crow is still in effect in the South. Um, the Great Migration has happened. Like, this type of property should not be... Uh, prosperous and profit earning mm-hmm. and an inter- like a good place for someone to make a lot of money and the thing about Big Daddy is that he did like drop out of school and started working for these guys who owned this property and then worked his way up it's a little fuzzy as to how exactly to me anyway how he made the leap to the top mm-hmm. but it is not inherited wealth and now he's dying so mm-hmm. to make another reference it is very succession like it is very uh, well, that, and, and i mean that one earnestly. Oh, you're making you're making a reference to a modern show that people yeah. might be watching yes okay, i guess i know i'm didn't, allowed didn't know we were selling out <laughs> i'm allowed one of these a year Andrew, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you make this relate to the show kid nation in some way like just <laughs> um so the the precarity of his of his wealth is something we're thinking about. He has these two sons, Gooper and Brick. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Yeah, hi, what, I'm big. Hi, hi, I'm Big Daddy, and these are my sons, Gooper and Brick. What Disney Channel teen <laughs> drama are Gooper and Brick both part of? Oh no, all the names of this play rule. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's great. Um, so there is this, like, the thing that has been bubbling as Big Daddy was thinking that he was dying is 
he doesn't have a will. Who's going to inherit the land? I think there is the dramatic irony of the play is that like this type of wealth in the South is going away or has already gone away. Mm-hmm. So whatever they're clinging to is is not long for the world. Um, but the play doesn't quite deal with that. I think it's just in the background. But So we've got Brick. Let's talk about Brick. Andrew. Yeah, Brick me up. Brick is the favored son of Big Mama and Big Daddy. And well, because the other one's named Gooper. Yeah, Goop. Well, I, let me get Gooper <laughs> out of the way real my, quick. Which is my least favorite poison type Pokemon. <laughs> Gooper, Gooper. Gooper, Gooper. He is a loser. He is a lawyer in town. Uh, and he's like a property lawyer or something. He and his wife may. Uh, some okay in the in the characters of the play in the dramatist personae, uh-huh. May comma sometimes called sister woman, and Gooper comma sometimes called brother man. I don't. Okay. What, I, I mean, I guess it goes with Big Daddy and Big Mama. Yeah. Uh huh. Sister. And I think Gooper, sister dad and brother boy. I think Gooper is older. I could be. I could be wrong. But um, he's a lawyer. Big Daddy doesn't really like him. But he and May have had five kids, and they're working on a sixth. So she is inc- <laughs> Work, working on it, huh? Yeah, it's coming. Uh, <laughs> and it so she is incredibly fertile, and like they are proving that they have heirs to you know keep this place go- a going, mm-hmm, keep um, it in the family. Yes, and he obviously Gooper resents uh, how much Big Mama and Big Daddy like Brick, of course. Uh huh. Um, and so Brick, who's married to Margaret, uh, Brick was this like high school football star. Uh, he and his buddy Skipper, uh, instead of pursuing like professional careers, they decided let's go into pro football. And How'd that go? It didn't go great. Brick <laughs> got a spinal injury and could never play again. And okay. has uh, since fallen deep into drink. After kind of stopping being a like a football broadcaster, like a TV announcer, mm-hmm. um, Skipper's no longer with us. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Brick, I mean, he's he's the there's a three hour tour, and he was he was trapped on the island with yeah. Gilligan. He's mm-hmm. on he's on the Big Island in the sky. Skipper is <laughs> with, um, with with Gilligan. <laughs> oh, uh, and Margaret Br- Brick's wife. Uh, she, I think May, um, sister woman comes from money, comes from some money. Uh, Margaret's family used to have money and then lost it. So she's still like coming from quote unquote society, but she's actually like marrying into a family that has more wealth than she does. So is that like, do we not trust Gooper and, and May because they are like, I don't know, like outsiders or city folk or people who think they are better than, but like, why? Why don't we like them? We don't like. Well, there's a couple reasons why we don't like them. Why don't? Later why on, don't Big Daddy and Big Mama like them? Um, particularly, I guess. I think, I think Brick is just the one they like more. Like that's mm. not real. When things are really hitting the fan in Act Three, Big Mama says. Where's Brick, my only son? And Gooper's wow. like, what? Is I'm happening? right here, Mom. Gee whiz. Uh, so yeah, and and in Act Two, it is all about 
Big Daddy trying to connect with his son Brick. Now I'm, you know, it's that sounds very nice and wholesome, but it is not. Well, I mean, it would sound nice if there wasn't a whole other son over there that <laughs> yeah. wasn't who wasn't being connected with the entire time. We also learn later in the play that uh, Gooper and May have been uh, like deliberately in the room next to Margaret and Brick so that they can listen in on their conversations and kind of peeping Tom the fact that uh, Margaret and Brick never have sex and seem to have a terrible marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And Gooper and May are kind of using that to build their case that, like, they're the ones who should inherit everything. Yeah. Uh, Because they've had sex at least five times. uh, Six. Oh. It's on the way. It's on, oh, it's on the way. The order you said has been they were, You said they were working on it in a way. Oh, that... excuse me. May's <laughs> body is working on it. <laughs> okay. Um, we we got introduced to May and Gooper through Act One, where which is mostly a monologue from Margaret with some interruptions because Brick is uh, drunk all the time. He broke his ankle last night running hurdles at the high school in town. <sighs> Brick. Um, and he generally just doesn't want to be on this planet. Yeah. Um, and Margaret is just, you know, going full steam ahead. She's constantly referring to May and Gooper's kids as no neck monsters. <laughs> she hates them. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, kids are, kids are, kids are tough. <laughs> she really doesn't kids. like them. Um, and there is, when this play gets, it's gets, to its most cacophonous, there are like kids running in and out of the room and yelling and upsetting some of the other major characters. And it is my understanding that Kazan kind of like ratcheted all of that up. Um, Williams's original script is way more focused on the main characters, and Kazan has like a lot of extra like business that sure. happens with all these supporting roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but Act One is mainly Margaret and Brick, and Margaret is doing her dangdest to get Brick to sleep with her ever again. Uh huh. Um, and it's not going great because sure. literally all Brick wants to do every day is drink enough so that his brain does what he calls a click, and he is finally at peace. Yikes. And I I imagine that's not just conducive to lovemaking. No, it is. Also, he doesn't like Margaret um, for for reasons that they dive into. um, The thing before I get to what those reasons are, I think one of Kazan's notes for the play was that Margaret needs to be more sympathetic. And Williams took that note to heart i think Mm -hmm. because if you especially reading the og version of the script she can be this is this is gonna she can be catty um meow (laughs) and like a lot of her ranting against may or the no neck monsters or whatever i think you can find a way to to a version of that performance that is about her trying to make a connection with Brick. Yeah. But if you're not careful, it can just be like, who is this lady yelling for half an hour? Yeah, right. Um, and she is the one that gives us the title of the play. Andrew. She's the cat? She is the cat. Let me see if I have the, the quote here. And is the roof 
a literal roof or are we talking like a plastic theater sort of figurative <laughs> figurative roof? Let me, I'll just read the quote. <laughs> okay. Um, she's talking about whether or not, you know, because at, at this point she has filled us in on the cancer thing, on the, the no will thing, on the need for an heir. And her and Brick have gone back and forth such that we know that they don't sleep together and, and are on the rocks. And she says, you know, if I thought you would never, never, never make love to me again, I would go downstairs to the kitchen and pick out the longest and sharpest knife I could find and stick it straight in my heart. I swear that I would. But one thing I don't have is the charm of the defeated. My hat is still in the ring and I am determined to win. What is the victory of a cat on a hot tin roof? I wish I knew. Just staying on it, I guess, as long as she can. <laughs> and throughout the play, people start calling her Maggie the Cat. Mm-hmm. And she is like, her endurance, her survival in this family, I think is what that rings true to. And you could probably like extrapolate the, the notion of like how any of these characters are, are able to survive uh, as part of that cat on a hot tin roof. But also, right. it's like a cat in the alley that's like wants to have sex too. <laughs> well, I mean, like the the cat on the hot tin roof thing. It does also, like t- to me anyway, as somebody who didn't read the play and is who is yeah, only sure. like processing the imagery. I had not thought about what it means until I read the play. <laughs> it's just a yeah, thing I just, knew people said. Yeah, it's just like the cat's not up there for something. Mm. It's just. Except for like maybe the stubbornness of being a cat, yeah. But it's not like someone told the the cat, "Oh, you're gonna inherit all the land if you stand no. on the hot tin roof the the longest." It's just <laughs> it's just like people stubbornly hanging on for the sake of hanging on, maybe yes. almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. I'll come back to what Brick's deal is in a second, but the, I want to read um, a quote from Williams that gets exactly to what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams said about the play. This is a a quote excerpted from whether or not he would make certain changes. But he said, the play says only one affirmative thing about, quote unquote, man's fate, that he has it still in his power not to squeal like a pig, but to keep a tight mouth about it. And also that love is possible, not proven or disproven, but possible. Mm -hmm. And that quote, not the love is possible part. That's about a lot of the characters in the play. But that (laughs) part about whether or not um, he's going to like you know, squeal like a pig about his fate or, you know, grin his teeth and bear it mm-hmm. um, is a lot of what Big Daddy is up to mm-hmm. because that guy goes on a roller coaster of thinking that he was dying and then everyone's like, nah, it's just your spastic colon. And he's like, great, you know what was making it spastic? All you people treat me like I was dying. I'm back. I'm Big Daddy. I'm gonna, I hate my wife and I'm gonna bone someone else. And I love my son, but I don't know how to talk to him. Well, I and love I'm one of best. my sons. <laughs> yeah, I, what other son? Gooper, get out of here. And like the dude rolls into act two like a force of nature, like a man. With a new lease on life, and he's got a hot rod. He doesn't have a hot rod. He's, he's not, you know, buying. <laughs> he's not doing the whole cars. midlife crisis thing. Yeah, he has not dyed his hair blonde or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but his like f- the fervor with which he attacks what he thinks is a positive uh, prognosis uh, is some of what Williams is is up to, and it's the mm-hmm. inverse of Brick, who is like, what if I 
I don't want to take any drastic measures, but like I don't want to be here either. This Briggs <laughs> deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you like even in the the quick summary I gave you of Big Daddy, I think you can see that Kazan is like, yeah, that character. The only, there's not a match for that character in this play, and it is weird that you just make him go away because <laughs> he's only in Act Two. All of all of Act One is. Maggie and Brick, a few other characters flit in and out. We hear about the no-neck monsters singing happy birthday to him or whatever mm-hmm. downstairs. And then uh, Act 2, a bunch of people come into the room uh, because Brick's broken ankle means that everybody has to come to him. Yeah. He's, he's moving around on a crutch. but uh, And then everybody goes out on like... They call it the gallery. I think it's like a fancy balcony patio thing like they're all outside watching fireworks or something mm-hmm. they're just on the porch yeah and he's like i gotta talk to my son and uh he tries to talk to his son for like half an hour and there are some explosive revelations between the two of them yeah and- i could i could see why like everybody's there for big daddy's birthday big daddy's dying Big Daddy can maybe make the decision about who gets the land. Like the place where it revolves around Big Daddy. So to give yep. you a taste of Big Daddy in Act Two, and in Act Three, there's no Big Daddy. Yeah, that does feel. I, I think I'm with with Kazan on this one. What's interesting Man. is that nothing that, like his presence in Act Three is to show up and like have a bunch of we- weird interactions with Maggie the cat. And then weird how do I want to know? Well, okay. So (laughs) okay, that let me just do like some like quick plot stuff. I think here. Yeah, do some plot stuff. So in Act One, we learn that Brick and Maggie have a terrible relationship because, at least the current state of it is as bad as it is because Mm -hmm. he was very good friends with his friend Skipper. Oh, like, well, okay. That just to say they were very, very good friends. Okay. And there were people who thought that maybe there was something romantic. Uh, and to hear Brick talk about it and even hear Williams talk about it, that was not Brick's inclination. Mm-hmm. It may have been Skipper's. But when Brick gets that like spinal injury and doesn't play in the game and goes home, uh-huh. um, Maggie confronts Skipper and is like, hey, you got to like sort this out with Brick because it's kind of messing up our relationship. And the two of them decide to try and sleep together mm-hmm. to prove that Skipper's not into Brick. Mm-hmm. Skipper can't consummate that interaction. Uh-huh. And then he begins thinking about his own sexuality, reaches out to Brick about it. Brick shuts it down and then Skip- Skipper drinks himself to death. Fun and Brick, fun. yeah, Brick fun. blames Maggie about about it and blames himself. Uh, but that's like the thing hanging over the two of them. Okay, she's determined to have Brick get her pregnant mm-hmm. so that they can win the lottery of <laughs> this house because and they she hope knows they that get Big pregnant in die. like the next couple of days or like. Mm. What's the- <laughs> so then, Big Daddy. And Brick are trying to connect. Big Daddy's like, hey, I'm alive again. It's super cool, but also I love you, son. I don't know why you're drinking yourself to death. Mm -hmm. Please tell me why you're drinking yourself to death. I sort of 
knew or suspected something about you and Skipper, and Brick kind of flips out about that and starts raving about mendacity, Andrew. Yeah, that's a good word. And all the lies that people tell each other and just kind of... It, uh, it is clearly coming from a very personal place of pain, but it as he st- speaks about it, it's very abstract. And Big Daddy's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, I don't love my wife. I hate her, but what do you want? Like, I'm do Big we, Daddy. Do we get... like maybe? And maybe you talked about this already. Do we get... Anything between Brick and Gooper? Like, what's their relationship? Um, like, not till Act 3. Okay, not till Act 3. Because it's... Up to this point, it seems like Gooper exists mostly Gooper's to a- create some question about whether Brick is going to, like, get the land or not. I don't know. And Brick doesn't even want it. Gooper and May are obstacles for Maggie, primarily. Okay, all right. Um... They are they are the thing that she knows stands between her, like having any sort of life moving because Brick is killing himself, right? And if they don't get this land, then she will have nothing, and mm-hmm. she comes from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so she needs to have a son by him, and she needs to not lose to the the parents of the no neck monsters. That's like Maggie's thing. Um, the the painful interaction between big daddy and brick about brick's history leads brick to lash out and tell big daddy that no it's not your calling you are Mm -hmm. dying Mm -hmm. uh and so big daddy flips out and then he leaves the stage and normally we would not see him ever again but in act three when big daddy does come back at that point they've broken the news to big mama I don't remember if he comes back before Gooper and May have like pulled out a briefcase and be like, "Hey, we drafted a will for Dad." <laughs> just, just like give it a once over. Tell me what you think. Just think about it. No big deal. Um, but he comes back in, and Maggie has made her play where she says, "I'm pregnant," mm-hmm. to everyone in the room, mm-hmm. whether now, she is or not. This is not true. Uh-huh. We. We know, and I mean, Brick is like, whatever, lady. Um, but because Gooper and, and May were in the next room, we know there's. They probably, they, pro- they don't really, they don't they really do that. They probably don't believe it, no. Uh-huh. Um, but Big Daddy doesn't like that they're always spying on him. So, like, Big Daddy wants to trust her. <laughs> but then also, Big Daddy has this, like, reaction. Big Daddy contains multitudes. He's he a does. Real, this is the guy. He, he has this reaction to her and she she says it in the beginning of the play that he has some sort of lech on her like Mm -hmm. he is like interested in her gross yeah it's gross um but she you know tells him about the pregnancy he seems like impressed or something he seems maybe turned on by it in a weird way big daddy does okay he also tells this weird story about an elephant at the zoo having a boner. It's like a joke about an <laughs> elephant with a boner. What? I don't. Okay. Can I just read it to you? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to try and read this. This is not. I think there's a version of this where they didn't keep this joke in, and then there are other versions. Young married couple <laughs> took Junior out to the zoo one Sunday, inspected all God's creatures in their cages with satisfaction. This afternoon was a warm afternoon in spring, and that old elephant had something else on his mind, which was bigger in peanuts. 
You see, in this cage adjoining, this was a young female elephant in heat. Uh, all right. That female elephant in the next cage was permeating the atmosphere about her with a powerful and exciting odor of female fertility. Mm-hmm. So this old bull elephant still had a couple of fornications left in him. He reared back his trunk and got a whiff of that elephant lady next door, began to paw at the dirt in his cage and butt his head against the separating partition. And first thing you know, there was a conspicuous change in his profile. Very conspicuous. Ain't I telling this story in decent language, Brick, he says. So the little boy pointed at it and said, what's that? His ma'am said, oh, that's nothing. His papa said, she's spoiled. Well, Ilya Kazan said, bring Big Daddy back on stage. And Tennessee Williams said, okay. Okay, is this what you wanted? <laughs> you asked for it. Did you want this uh, monologue about uh, about an elephant? <laughs> About elephant wieners, because that's I can give that to you if that's what you that's what you're asking for. I have no idea what it would be like to read this play for the first time and have that actually be part of it. Because I read Act Three, there was no Big Daddy. There's it no Big Daddy. There's no elephant no, monologue. <laughs> no, there's this like fascinating absence of Big Daddy, and the only thing you get is him offstage crying in pain as the cancer claims him. Uh-huh. And instead, I read the Ilya Kazan version where he's like, "Give me that." elephant penis can we please can we please get big daddy back here again to talk to tell this elephant story what yeah he's a lewd crude dude mama and he's mia. got a big dude Ooh, that's one you know? spicy meatball um the end of the play mm. which is sad and and moving and and awful um everyone leaves the room except for margaret and brick because Big Daddy is having some sort of like attack. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on what version you've read, he's also told a sick joke, and then he's left and, and had <laughs> had an attack. Jeez. Uh, and Margaret is like, "Okay, well, I just told everyone that I'm pregnant, and now I'm going to need to make that happen." So, in like, depending on which version you're reading, she gets away. She deal. She gets rid of all of his liquor somehow. Mm-hmm. Either locks it up or tosses it uh, over the over the balcony or whatever, and she's like, "I'll get you more after you finally sleep with me again." Mm-hmm. And uh, in the the version that you don't do anymore, he says something like, "I admire you" to her, and mm-hmm. like, does he feel feelings for her? Is he just impressed with her gumption? That's sort of what you're what you're dealing with in that version. In the version that I think you you do do now, and in the original script, she is basically like pulling him into bed, telling him what's going to happen. He has gotten his click finally. He is mm-hmm. in his zone, um, and she is like, "Okay, we're going to make the lie true." Um, I'll give you the liquor back after we do, you know, what we need to do. And she says, oh, you weak people, you weak, beautiful people who give up. What you want is someone to take hold of you gently with love. And she says, I do love you, Brick, I do. And this is a callback to something Big Daddy said meanly about Big Mama. He just Mm -hmm. looks at her and goes, wouldn't it be funny if that was true? End of play. Mic drop. So whether or not they succeed... 
it is not one of people actually connecting with each other. It is kind of a, they're just going to do it so yeah. that they can, so that at least she can survive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a good victory for that cat on that roof. No, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, that's the, what, it, I wasn't expecting a multiverse from this play. <laughs> Um, I was expecting some... I mean, which, which reality do you prefer if you're going to pick one? I I kind of like the... La- it's not just the the elephant The elephant thing, yeah. That turns me off of the Big Daddy coming back. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know that this is in the 1974 version. There's some extra, like, there's a storm coming, like kids running through the house mm-hmm. before Big Daddy returns. Mm-hmm. That I think you know it. That's part of that plastic theater like metaphor stuff. Yeah, plastic theater. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is unnecessary. Like it, the the what I like about the structure of the o- the original play that I read was like Act One, Brick and Margaret. Act Two, Brick and Big Daddy. Act Three, kind of everyone and Big Mama with a coda of Brick and Margaret. I kind of mm-hmm. like the the way that the the play put those different pairs and, and groups against each other um to to bring big daddy back in i don't know he's big enough that his presence can be felt even when he's off stage you he's know? big daddy yeah he's big daddy yeah um there's he a spoil, lot of other he spoils people with this <laughs> i don't know who's the, spo- is big, the, the elephant big... spoiled or is the the wife spoiled she is she is spoiled because the elephant doesn't seem like that big a deal to her, mm. to her right? Yes, that's Im- the implying that she lacks or lacks context to to know that, that that's not, actually that not all dudes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that not all dudes are big daddy. I'm just like, what? Yeah, that not all dudes are big daddy. I'm sure. st- struggling with how to fit this in a context that doesn't get us a little explicit tag on the. <laughs> On the podcast, and I, maybe we crossed the line already. I don't know. We'll see I if we hear know. from people. See if we get emails. Yeah, we might. Who knows? Um, I mean, I do like to get emails. Usually, I love to get emails. Yeah. Um, overall, I really dug this play. There's some stuff with Big Mama that I didn't, you know, find time to put in here. There's a lot of stuff about her, like weight as just kind of a as a in the way the way that it's written where it's like she's a weak pitiful person because Mm -hmm. of her size Mm -hmm. um that like i don't love it and i it's wrapped up in all of the other kind of symbolism that williams likes to do so like that's not gonna not be in the play he's put stuff in there i don't know um and there's a lot of interesting stage directions in this play um Mm -hmm. that are just kind of not quite of the Eugene O'Neill. I'm going to describe literally everything. <laughs> but in Act 1, here's a good one. That, and this is one that I was not expecting. When he's talking about Maggie and I guess how we're supposed to feel about her, he says, this is in the middle of like her doing a big rant. He goes, she has to capture the audience in a grip so tight that she can hold it till the first intermission without any lapse of attention. And I'm just not... 
used to playwrights of this era. I don't think about playwrights of this era as talking about the relationship to the audience from a dramatic perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm used to them talking about it from a staging perspective or whatever. Um, and then he also has a whole other, like, he has, like, three pages of notes for the designer in terms of, like, here are all the very specific things I lo- I would love to be in this set, and here's all the dreamy things I would love to be in this set. Have I mean, fun. I want the characters to be able to run around when they're upset. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does sound like the whole plastic theater thing would... Yeah. Like, you you need to be, as the playwright, if, if what you're trying to do is convey through, like, set design or lighting or whatever, like, yeah. a, a certain mood that you would like to be preserved in the same way that your, like, dialogue is preserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yeah. maybe you do need to be a little more... You do. Microman- yeah. A little more micromanaging about some of the, the decisions. And, I, I mean, I guess as a director, you can choose to incorporate those or riff on those or ignore those as you as you like i I guess but gotta be careful with that yeah it seems it just does seem like part of what williams is is trying to do by yeah like he's he's not trying like not not everything he's doing is contained within the dialogue of two people talking to there's a stage direction andrew where he says the bird that i hope to catch in the net of this play is not the solution of one man's psychological problem i'm trying to catch the true quality of experience in a group of people that cloudy flickering evanescent fiercely charged interplay of live human beings in the thundercloud of a common crisis not a typical stage direction Plastic where the playwright man. yells at me plastic about what theater. he's doing. <laughs> you I love to it. Get with it. Give it the times, buddy. It's plastic I love theater. Williams. And, and Andrew, I'll just share one more uh, struck me funny to close us out. Oh, wonderful. There was a fun turn of phrase that Maggie the Cat used. She was talking about Gooper and, <laughs> Gooper, Gooper. and whether or not he's going to inherit the farm. She said, I got a piece of Spanish news for Gooper. A piece of Spanish, what does that mean, piece of Spanish news? So I googled piece of Spanish news. It took me to Urban Dictionary, okay, which, right, which cites this play. This play, yeah, sure. Thanks to Joe McHugh from September 2007. Mm-hmm. From the unreliable journalism covering the Spanish-American war, a bit of hot gossip that may or may not be exaggerated. Ooh. I, man, are we going to have to figure out, are we going to have to bring Spanish news back? I got a piece of Spanish news for you. We're going to have to bring this back. (laughs) Yeah. Send us emails with ways that you have used Spanish news in conversation. I don't... Can we say I got a piece of Spanish news? Is that allowed? Yeah, I mean, nobody says we can't. That's true. We're going to get canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you would talk about uh, sharing hot goss other than spilling tea or whatever. Send us an email. Yeah, don't say that. Mm-hmm. OverduePod at gmail.com. Andrew, thanks for letting me tell you about this play and all Craig, the various versions of it. Thanks for telling me about it and all of the various elephant stuff and all the other stuff. It's a cool play. It's a many splendored thing, this play. Yeah. The brick the brick stuff is really fascinating, especially given Williams's personal history. Yeah. Um, and and Williams is just a playwright that you can read a lot of what he thought about his own stuff, which we yeah. don't always have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to folks reaching out to us on social media in the past week at Overdue Pod on all your favorite social channels: Hazel, Natasha, Don, Jeremy, Roe, Lisa, Ann, Marissa, and many more. 
Uh, thanks to Nick Larandris, who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Over to podcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. We have a link to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pod. Uh, you can support the show directly with that link. Uh, get access to our Discord server where we talk about like the... Uh, sometimes we're just talking about video games and sometimes we're talking about like whether like just what it means to be a parent or whatever yeah or what books you're reading <laughs> or what books you're reading there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of stuff going on in there uh we also get uh access to bonus episodes early uh we recorded an off the rails one about the choose your own adventure book ghost train yep yeah we did that uh that was just a, changed everyone's lives i think <laughs> um <laughs> next week i am going to be reading Heidi by Johannes don't know how to pronounce don't know how to pronounce it but I'll figure it out for next week yeah as often happens Uh, but until we talk to you then everybody thank you for listening and try to be happy That was a HeadGum Podcast.